Ski didn't mention we also do that so that you'll really appreciate it when he's back. <clears throat> well, welcome back to our, our series on the book of Acts. And today we're going to pick up our study at the end of chapter 23, verse 23. So if, if you're one of those who like to take notes or read along in your own Bible, then we're going to be in chapter 23, verse 23. And today we're going to go through the 24th chapter of Acts. So this is our study continued um, on our study of Acts the to the ends of the earth. Um, Skeet told me this morning that he didn't know exactly what I was going to say, but he knew it would have some kind of medical mystery in it. But um, So here it goes. <laughs> About 20 years ago, um, I was a chief resident at Brook Army Medical Center in the pediatric residency there. And you had several duties as a chief resident, but one of the res- one of the duties of the chief resident was to do uh, infant and pediatric transports uh, via helicopter. This was um, in the late 80s, early 90s, and the helicopters that we used were UH-1s, or what some people are familiar with as UEs, and they'd all been in service since Vietnam, and some of them actually had patched bullet holes in them. But um, at any rate, uh, so for instance, if, if a baby was born too premature or too ill or another patient was too ill and they were born at an outlying Army hospital, then our job as chief resident would go with the crew, pick up the baby, and transport them back. What made this possible is we had this uh, really neat device for its time. They're more commonplace now. But it was essentially a, a portable pediatric ICU. This device, which rolled on wheels and must have weighed 800 pounds because we had to lift it onto the helicopter, but it had a fully functioning ventilator. It had IV pumps. It had a cardiorespiratory uh, monitor, a warmer, a pulse ox. It had everything that you would have uh, in an ICU. And so we would take these isolettes, we call them, or infant transporters, and go get the babies and these things with the helicopter. Well, one night about uh, midnight, while I was chief resident, we got the call uh, that up at Fort Hood, there was a 26-week preemie that had been born that weighed just a tad over one pound, uh, and so was very ill and needed to be in a neonatal intensive care unit. So we loaded up our stuff, got everything ready, took off in the helicopter to Fort Hood, Things went very well. We got the baby, got the IVs in, got the ventilator going. Everything was great. And within two hours, we were flying somewhere over the Texas Hill Country. And everything was was golden, as we used to say. It was perfect. Uh, About that time, now the the transporter has a glass front on it with little holes that you can reach your arms through uh, so that the baby doesn't get cold. About... uh, about that time, as we're flying back, I noticed that suddenly the window to the isolate is real foggy looking, almost greasy. And about that time, I turn around and the cabin or of the of the helicopter it was filling with this mist. It almost looked like a, a morning fog. Well, of course, about the time I noticed this, the uh, crew chief on the helicopter noticed it as well. And then the pilots noticed this. And um, if there are any pilots in the room, forgive me, but I believe it was something wrong with hydraulic fluid was leaking into the cabin in a, in a mist. 
Um, that can't exist for a long time. And since helicopters don't glide very long, we immediately started looking for a place to set the helicopter down and, and so that we didn't crash with everybody on board. And uh, sure enough, there was a field uh, just ahead. <clears throat> and so we landed in this field. It was uh, By this time, it was about 3 a.m., uh, brightly moonlit uh, night, and so we sat down in this field. Well, one of the problems that we were worried about fire, and so they had to shut off all power to the helicopter, which also shuts off power to my little transporter. Now, my transporter had a battery backup, and so everything would run on it except the ventilator. And so if you had to cut power, then you had to do what we call bag the, the baby manually. So you stick your arms through and you're squeezing like this and holding it on with the other hand, and you're watching for the chest rise because you're not on a monitor anymore. So I start bagging the baby, and we sit down in this field. So we land successfully, and we sit down in the field, and I'm bagging the baby, and I'm like, well, this is not something that happens every day. And so <clears throat> I'm sitting there, and we're bagging the baby, and before long, or almost immediately, we realize that the field we sat down in had about... 50 to 75 full-grown ostriches in it. Okay, it gets weirder. <clears throat> the ostriches don't like the helicopter one bit, like it's some big bird of prey or something. And so, and so in response to their dislike of us landing in their field, the ostriches start making these mad laps around this pasture, and they're throwing up dirt and dust, and making this sound, which I won't try to imitate, but it's weird. And so it's, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and these weird sounds, and this literally, it sounds like a herd of cows, you know, and, you know, just running through the field. Boom, boom, boom. So the ostriches are, are running. Ostriches keep on running. I keep bagging baby. Well, about that time, the owner of the 75 ostriches shows up. He also is not happy with us landing in his field. Because apparently, in very colorful language, he describes to us that the ostriches, when they are stressed, do not lay for a, quite some time, and it's going to cost him a lot of money. So when he finishes this tirade, he aims his shotgun at the pilot, who's sitting, I don't know, two feet away from me, and says, take off now, and activates the little pump mechanism on the shotgun. <clears throat> ostriches keep running. I keep bagging baby. <laughs> well, about this time, the crew chief, who was a E-7, had been in the military for about 94 years, came around behind the helicopter while we were all kind of freaked out. He was very calm, walked up behind the ostrich owner with a shotgun and put a 9mm on the back of his head and said, Sir, I need you to put that shotgun down. <clears throat> Ostriches just keep running, I keep bagging baby. <laughs> so, so there I was. I, I was manually ventilating a premature infant on a broken helicopter somewhere in the Texas Hill Country in the middle of a field full of wigged out ostriches while the crew chief was pointing a 9mm at a farmer who was pointing a shotgun at the pilot who was sitting next to me. It was at this point that I very clearly remember thinking, how in the world did I get in the middle of this? I'm a pediatrician. <laughs> and if you think he was mad then, you should have seen him when the second helicopter came to pick up us. 
Now, why am I telling you this story, other than the fact that I really love to tell this story? <clears throat> well, as we study this passages in Acts uh, today, you will find, uh, if you read along, that uh, Paul gets thrown into these extraordinary circumstances. So that at times, Paul must have been asking himself the very same question that I was asking that night was, how in the world did I end up in the middle of this? And although Paul must have been incredibly frustrated at times to be in these situations that he found himself in, this time was also a very important time that God was using for his purposes and for the advancement of the gospel. I believe... Uh, that our lives as believers are often the same way. We end up in some crazy situation that is often not of our making. We're in this weird circumstance, and we, and we don't know how we got there. And without our knowledge or understanding, God is using that exact circumstance to advance the gospel. And in, within those circumstances, uh, it's up to us to just trust Him and sometimes just... Hang on. So back to the book of Acts. In the latter part of the book of Acts, there are a total of five trials that Paul faces. And Luke, the author of Acts, he presents these trials as a set of summaries. And we find that during these summaries, during these trials, you always see that Paul finds a way to work in a presentation of the gospel, even though he has no control of the events surrounding him. And more importantly, in each of these trials that Paul faces, it's not really Paul on trial. Rather, it's Christianity and the gospel that is on trial, which leads us to our main focus of today's teaching. We're going to look at the gospel messenger and responses to the gospel. So today, as we unpack this passage in Act, we're going to examine some of the accusations that gospel messengers face, both then and today. And we're also going to look at two specific responses to the gospel. And and lastly, at the end, we're going to look together at some specific applications uh, for believers in their their walk of faith today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 23. Uh, As we begin this passage... Paul has been imprisoned, as, as Skeet taught about last week. Paul's been imprisoned in this Antonio fortress in Jerusalem. And he's down in the uh, dungeon of sorts. Uh, it's been locked there. He's facing a plot by the Jews who want to kill him. And the Roman commander learns of this plot and decides to transfer Paul in the middle of the night to Caesarea. So beginning in verse 23, let's look at that together. Verse 23, chapter 23. It says, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews. And they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Now, Claudius fudged the truth a little bit there, but he gets the message across. He says, uh, beginning in verse 28, he says, "I I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations had to do with questions about their law. 
but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. Verse 31. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go with them while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what providence he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. <clears throat> so, wow, what, what just happened? Uh, the day before, Paul is in a dungeon in a military barracks about to be beaten and informed of a plot against his life where the conspirators, get this, had vowed to not eat until he was dead. Yet, God had told him the day before that he was going to preach the gospel in Rome. It's at that point where Paul uh, was wondering just how God was going to pull this off, uh, much less how was Paul even going to survive. And, and then flash forward to the next day. Paul has the modern-day equivalent of a presidential uh, motorcade with a Secret Service escort um, out of the city where he's delivered into Herod's palace. The, this... Poor missionary has just gone from a dungeon in a barracks, dirt floor dungeon, to Herod's palace. Paul must have thought to himself, you know, those guys who made that oath to kill me before they would eat must be getting kind of hungry by now. So this is not even part of our outline this morning, so this is free. If, if, if God has determined to use you for His kingdom purposes, there is no obstacle There's no plot, there's no challenge that God cannot overcome to bring about His purposes. And so those challenges that you might be facing this morning, uh, they're God's business. And and you just have to trust Him. So that was free. Let's, Let's return to the Scriptures beginning in chapter 24 of Acts. So Acts 24, verse 1. It says, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, I won't read it, but verse 2 through 4 recounts this lawyer grandstanding and kissing up to Felix, uh, the governor. And so let's pick up the actual charges in verse 5. It says, verse 5, We have found this man to be a troublemaker. He's stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And he's even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we seized him. So in verses 5 and 6 there, we we have three main accusations against Paul that's made by this Sanhedrin's lawyer. Number one, he says that Paul is stirring up riots. In other words, he's a dangerous and probably a violent man. Number two, the lawyer says that he's the ringleader of a cult. In other words, he's a crazy fanatic that's... uh, got this out-of-the-way religion that no one takes seriously. And number three, he says that he even desecrated the temple. And so he must be this hateful, intolerant lawbreaker. I want to ask you, does this sound at all familiar when you think about how the local news and the media portrays Christians on television? 
Now, they make their charges, and Paul is given a chance to respond to his accusers. So let's pick it up in verse 10. It says, verse 10, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. Now, over the next seven or so verses, Paul goes in great detail about the events that led up to his arrest and exactly who uh, arrested him when he was in the temple. And then Paul then closes his defense in verse 21 where he states that it's actually his belief in the resurrection of the dead that he is on trial for. Okay, so so once again, Paul is accused of three things. One is stirring up riots. Number two is being the leader of a cult. And, I'm sorry, number two is leader of a cult. Number three is he's desecrated the temple. And, and Paul's defense here is also threefold. Number one, it's... Am I a dangerous and violent man? Well, well, Paul says, I was arrested while worshiping quietly. Number two, am I a crazy fanatic from an unrecognized religion? Get this, Paul says, I'm not in a cult. I'm following the same scriptures, only correctly applied. And then number three, he says, am I a hateful lawbreaker? And he says, my actual accusers are not even present by Roman law. So where are those who seized me in the temple? Where are the witnesses? And then Paul makes a very important statement that he's infinitely familiar and he understands what exactly is going on. He says, I am actually on trial, not for what I have done, but for what I believe. And this is no new concept for Paul. Turn just for a second, if you're following along with your Bibles, turn to the Second Corinthians chapter 2. And look at verse 14 through 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Paul, writing from Macedonia to the uh, Corinthian church, says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Get this, to the one we are the smell of death and to the other we are the fragrance of life. So 2 Corinthians says that we as believers, we represent the gospel and we give off the aroma of Christ. It's an interesting concept. But for some people, this aroma is the smell of death. And as a result, they will respond in anger just like the Sanhedrin trying to prosecute Paul. So if you're a Christian and you attempt to share the gospel and then find yourself facing persecution, don't be surprised. And it's very likely that your actions will be twisted to portray you as either dangerous, fanatical, hateful, or intolerant. Don't be surprised. And what you must understand at this point, always keep this in mind, that it's not that you're being persecuted for what you have done. You're being persecuted, rather, for what you believe. 
Now, back to the text again to Felix. Felix, the, the governor, he's, he's well acquainted with the way because he's married to a Jewish wife named Drusilla, who happens to be from the very same town Paul's from. Uh, Felix now knows that this case against Paul is a, is a bunch of, of bull. Um, and so he adjourns the proceedings, um, but not wanting to offend the Jews, he makes no decision. He adjourns the proceedings. He lets Paul have freedom, and he lets him have visitors and people who can bring him food and visit with him as long as Paul doesn't leave the palace. So Paul's in the palace, Herod's palace, and Felix can come and go and visit him, and that's exactly what he does. And so we have this very interesting event that's recorded in Scripture in verse 24 of chapter 24. So jump down to verse 24 of Acts 24. It says, Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. And he sent for Paul, and he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul has the audience. He's going to witness to Felix. And so... Like no one else can, Paul discourses with Felix on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And as he does this, Felix is afraid, and he says, that is enough for now. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Isn't it interesting that Scripture says that the most powerful man in the entire region who has thousands of troops at his disposal... His response to the gospel is fear. He becomes afraid when Paul discusses righteousness and he shares the gospel with him. You know, as we look at these passages from today, uh, we see two distinct responses to the gospel. One is anger, and we saw that demonstrated by the Sanhedrin. And one is fear that we see in Governor Felix. Now, you might ask yourself, as I did, why do we see these two responses uh, to the gospel? I think the reason that, that we see these responses to the gospel, it lies at the very core of the gospel message. You see, the, the very first assumption contained in the gospel message is that we, you and I, are sinful, fallen, and hopeless without Jesus Christ. In, in other words... You are a sinner. And without a Savior, that life that you're leading right now has put a big division between you and God. It has separated you from God. Your life has separated you from God. Well, the self-righteous members of the Sanhedrin, they are completely offended by this very assumption. How dare you call me a sinner just like everyone else? I follow the rituals. I do it better than anyone else. I'm an elder for crying out loud, and I'm on the Sanhedrin. God has to accept me. Just look how holy I am. And the gospel cuts through this facade every time straight to their wicked hearts, and it makes them very angry. Angry enough sometimes to kill the gospel messenger. They were certainly angry enough to kill Paul. This response is seated in pride. This is why it is so very difficult to lead self-righteous people to Christ because they reject the very premise 
that they are sinners and in desperate need of a Savior. Okay, well, that's anger. What about fear? What about Felix and responding to fear with fear to the gospel? As you read this passage about Felix, you can see that as Paul discourses to him, and he's a very good arguer, Paul is, and the gospel starts to make sense to Felix. And you can see the wheels turning in Felix's mind. That As the gospel begins to make sense to him, it begins to scare him a little bit. You, you see, Felix had started life as a slave. And by his own bootstraps and conniving and politics, he had worked himself up to this governor of this region of Judea. And he kind of liked his life. You know, he had servants, he had perks, he had wealth. Felix did not want to talk about a future judgment or even to think about righteousness or even to consider that his life was an offense before God. Felix was proud of his life. He didn't want to talk about that, at least not right now. And, and, it's, and it's the same for many of us today. Just like Felix, many who encounter the gospel today, they respond by saying, stop, we'll just stop just a minute. I don't want to talk about that right now. You know, even though it's immoral and wicked, I sort of like my life that I have right now. For others, they may think that the gospel makes sense, but just like Felix, their plan is that they want to deal with the gospel later. And unfortunately, that later never comes. Folks like Felix realize that if they let the gospel into their life, their life will be forever changed. You see, religion is very impersonal. It's easy to keep religion at arm's length all the time and live your life the way you want to and practice religion. The gospel is not that way. It's very personal. It says the problem isn't out there, it's in here. And you are an offense before God. Your sin has separated Him from you. And sadly, because of this, some choose the, the worthless things of this world over the grace and peace and eternal presence of God. Let's turn back one last time to Acts chapter 24. And I want us to look at just one more verse, verse 27. It says, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. How long does it say there? Two years. It says Paul was stuck there for two years. And if you've read anything about Paul, two years in a palace, under guard, in limbo, must have been utter torture for a guy who was missionary to the bone. Must have drove him crazy. But did you know that most Bible scholars believe that it was during this two years that the author of Acts did most of his research and discussions with Paul and spent all this time in preparation for the writing of the book of Acts during those two years that Paul was probably very frustrated about. Can you imagine going directly from the Gospel of John into the weighty doctrines of Romans without the foundations laid down in the narrative history of the early church contained in the book of Acts? This time that must have driven Paul crazy at times was ever so vital for God's purposes. Okay, that wraps up 
chapter 24 of Acts. So let's close with some applications for us uh, from this passage. Number one, if you are a believer here today, I I want to tell you that God has a a plan for your life. And, And quite often, God's plan for your life looks nothing like your plans. So I ask you, can you as a gospel messenger trust Him? Can you follow Him when God's plans for you look nothing like the plans that you've made? Number two, if you are a believer, I want to clarify something for you. that When it comes to God's plans for your life, His job, God's job, is to bring about His plans and your job is to be faithful and to trust Him. It doesn't matter if you are stuck in an ostrich field for one night or if you are locked in Caesarea for two years, you just have to trust Him. Uh, some of you this morning are in a job, uh, a school, or some place in life that you don't understand why God hasn't answered your prayers and delivered you out of this place that you are in and you don't want to be in. You don't understand it, but maybe it's because God has you exactly where He wants you to be. Can you, as a representative of the gospel, can you trust Him? Will you follow Him? Number three, we are called to share the gospel with all of our hearts, no matter what our circumstances are, because the consequences are so eternal. Even if it makes some people uncomfortable and it makes some people angry enough to kill you, we are called to share the gospel with all our hearts. Can you trust Him? And will you follow Him? Last point this morning. If you're here this morning, if you were here this morning and you've encountered the gospel, maybe for the first time, if you've listened and you realize that something in your life is missing and you yearn for something more. God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, He died for us. And anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, when you get this message, you can respond in anger, like the Sanhedrin. You can respond like Felix in fear and say, maybe later. Or you can begin this incredible journey as a believer this very morning and your life will never, ever be the same. As uh, Zach and our worship team comes forward, um, I want to invite you this morning. If, if, if what we described, if what you want, if you really want that life in Christ, if you've heard the gospel and it makes sense to you, I want to invite you to take his hand this morning. I'm going to be at the back of the building uh, this morning in the back by the foyer. If that's what you want as we sing, I'm going to invite you to come and find me and we can talk and pray together about any of these points that we've talked about. But I ask you, don't say, don't say this morning, I'll deal with that, that later. So let's close in prayer.
Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we we come before you this morning, we, we're greatly for your word, we're grateful for the, for the narrative that uh, shows us no matter what our circumstances are, Lord, uh, you always hold us in the palm of your hand and that you love us uh, and you will bring about uh, the desires of your heart in our life if we will but trust you. And so Paul brings us uh, through the scripture this morning uh, and a proposition is laid out before us. Uh, will we trust you? Uh, will we follow you? No matter what our circumstances. So Lord, we lift you up. We lift up this time of worship and we thank you for your son. And I just pray that your spirit would work among us for it's in your name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 